We're continuing our study in not only 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians 15. As I mentioned, this chapter is the longest chapter in the New Testament epistles. stands by itself because Apostle Paul deals with the doctrine of resurrection. Hold throughout 58 verses. The last week as we studied the initial, and there is a reason why that why he presented the Christ resurrection first and foremost. And today his intention is revealed in, in verse, uh, verses 12 through 20. Actually, the paragraph ends on 19, and there is a reason why also that I include 20 on this message, and we will next Sunday, we'll start from 20 as well. Here's a brief recap. The resurrection of Christ, unlike our days, our Christianity in 21st century, the first century Christianity The resurrection was the message of the gospel. It was at the heart of the gospel. And over the years, somehow, uh, because of the cross of Christ and what Christ has accomplished on the cross, the resurrection became a little addendum we often miss. And how, how wonderful it is to be challenged and to be reminded. And ask yourself in this morning as you listen, how many times do I really think of as person, the person of the resurrection? The person whose message is about the resurrection. First century Christians were like that. Their testimonies in publicly is about the risen Christ. Obviously, the contemporaries knew about public crucifixion of Christ. So when that, whenever they said the gospel, the good news, and even our point of view, the word might be very familiar, but the essence of the gospel is blurry. What is the gospel? Let's be clear as we uh, review that. Verses 3 to 5, Paul summarizes not only his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ shared. This is the format, this is a style that every apostle and followers of Jesus Christ presented. Succinct way. Listen to this. Verse 3 is how he got it. For I deliver to you as a, of first importance what I also received. Meaning all the apostles shared the same thing. Received from Christ. And the mutual discernment and agreement of the confession of faith is there. And if you notice, there are two parts, once again, to essence of the gospel. First one is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. The second aspect is that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. The following sentences are 
supporting statements. For example, that he was buried was that it, it was really truly acknowledged public death. And not only his disciples who took the body and buried, but also the public officials, his enemies, adversaries, confirm the funeral was there, in other words. He was truly dead. And throughout the history, the wisdom is clear. Because in our century, there are so many uh, arguments against the resurrection of Christ based on the fact that he's not really truly dead. The second aspect is that he appeared to Cephas. As I mentioned, he appeared to many different people. He appeared to actually the woman first. But Paul chooses, in this text, Cephas as a representative of all followers. And obviously, Cephas was representative of 12. And uh, he chooses this reputable name. And then he mentioned the 12. And he lists out many different people. But the, this is the gospel. Notice this. I don't want to explore too much on this. But why is it gospel? Because Christ's death canceled out all of our deaths. We're forgiven. We're free. We're delivered. We're redeemed. But notice, if there wasn't a resurrection of Christ, the whole thing is nullified. Okay, now, today's question is, I mean, the evidence that Paul mentions, three things before we get into that. The threefold evidence was scripture and eyewitnesses and the changed lives. Paul saying, according to, in accordance with Scripture. Back then, the old, Scripture meant Old Testament. And there are numerous Messianic prophecies that prophesied and predicted not only the death, but the resurrection of Christ. And he always mentions this because the resurrection of Christ and the gospel of Christ is the sovereign plan of salvation for us. The eyewitnesses, um, he appeared to the many different people and Thomas touched, Thomas touched his uh, pierced hand and his side. 500 people seeing Jesus risen from the dead and let alone one or two people having hallucination will be very peculiar. Let's say some crazy people did that. But to have 500 people seeing Jesus could not be hallucination or fabrication. Furthermore, dying for something you have not really clearly seen or doubts about. It wasn't reality. Maybe it was a dream. Maybe it was this kind of vision. 
people would not die for that. They chose death, excruciatingly different kind of painful death for the sake of reason, Christ. Paul concludes about himself that he was the persecutor of the church. He used to kill Christians for the sake of glory of God. But he met reason, Lord, and his life was completely and radically transformed. And he presented as a the powerful, profound proof, along with many other uh, changed lives, even ongoing today. The question that we're asking this morning is rather kind of peculiar question, strange question that we would not ask. What if there is no resurrection? I'm not talking about Christ's resurrection. What if there is no resurrection of the dead? So this life is it. How can you be Christian and belonging to a church not believing in the resurrection of the dead? A Christ is a separate category and it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't seem right to us even to ask the question. Although in this day and age, there are all kinds of liberal Christians who choose to believe whatever they want to believe. There are people asking those kind of questions as well. But in the context of Corinthian church, we should know this. Paul presents uh, this question first, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, he just proved it, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There are two reasons for that. One is influence from the Greek philosophy. When you think about Greek philosophy, think about two people that is very uh, prominent. A couple of hundreds before Christ, this Greek philosophy was very influential. And the people in Corinth, living very close to Athens, were influenced by this. And I would frankly say many Christians even today are influenced by these thoughts. One is Epicurus. Epicurus is basically meaning the happiness is all about what you can feel and touch and pleasure and avoiding the, the suffering and the pain, absence of pain. That is what life is all about. So he's a very physical and materialistic person. The other side is Plato. Plato thought it was an abstract idea is the really truth. And that what we are seeing tangibly is not truth. It's, it's an illusion. So what is real is abstract and immaterial. What is not real is a materialistic. So simply put, it's, they call it this dualism. How does it translate into Christian culture? influence into that. Mainly thinking spirit is clean and pure and good and body is bad. As a matter of fact, Plato said our physical body is prison for our soul. And it sounds familiar, right? You know, 
many well-meaning Christians will say something like, oh, this body is, I'm living in a container for a while. True me will be with the Lord. That's a half-truth. What does it mean to be human being? What does it mean for sovereign God to save the mankind? He doesn't save the spirit and soul, the immaterialistic side of human being. It is incomplete human being. The angels don't have a physical body. The salvation, whole salvation, is our salvation of our spirit and, and soul and body as well. So in our Christian living, the physical needs, that's why the brothers and sisters who are struggling with physical needs, tangible needs, emotional needs, that is absolutely important. What has happened in 50, 60, 70 years of evangelical world, there was two divisions. People who are uh, emphasizing the salvation in Jesus Christ for the eternal life. What good is it if you are not saved? If, if you provide bread and water, clean water too. And the more liberal, now neoliberalism, emphasize continually of change and transformation of the community and justice, advocacy, and compassion as well. In the book of Acts, these words are never separated. It's a dualistic thinking. So we should put it all together and think about what resurrectionist means also directly affects us. True Christians need to think of the body as God-given, very important aspect of human being. Okay. Having said that, because of those influences, you know, people are saying, one, the Eupicurious, the Eupicurean uh, people will say, eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. This is it. We see that approach of life all the time in Orange County, right? Oh, there's no life after death. Or the other side will say, well, the Spirit is with the Lord, and the Spirit is good, and our body is done away with. This is half-truth. They believe the spiritual resurrection. So we need to even say these days to, to converse with uh, liberal theologians and liberal Christians will say, we need to say we believe in bodily resurrection of Christ and bodily resurrection of the dead and those who are in Christ as well. So Paul, in this context, raised the question. What if there is no resurrection of the dead? Now he's not talking about the Christ resurrection, but our resurrection. Here's the first answer. If there is no resurrection, our message and faith are in vain because not even Christ has been Raised. Aha, this is the reason why 
Apostle Paul presented the resurrection of Christ so powerfully, so strongly. Verse 13, if they, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be mispresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. The logic is clear. You cannot say Christ has risen and has a separate category, but there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of that, not even Christ is risen. If Christ is not risen, the whole house is falling apart because the foundation is the resurrection. So when you think about Christian faith, a Christian message, it is really not just teachings for good life and wisdom and moral morality and though all those are good things but the foundation at the bottom of the foundation is the resurrection of the Christ the risen Christ why is that every claim that he made if there is no resurrection falls apart it's a sham it's a con job. It's the biggest lie. Would you think about this, this coming week? When you think about major religions of this world, there is no even assertion and problems about the body of Muhammad is buried and is dead. dead. Buddha is dead. Confucius is dead. And it doesn't crumble their religiosity or belief system at all. But in Christian faith, everything falls apart. The validity of our faith and message is really null, nullified and empty without the resurrection of the dead. Number two, if there is no resurrection, we are still in our sins because, of, because the atoning death of Christ on the cross is nullified. Verse 16, again, if, For if the dead are not raised, and not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're, you are still in your sin. The powerful passage and the prophecies in Isaiah 53, by his wounds you are healed. He took the suffering. A theological phrase is called the substitutionary atonement. Those two words are very important. Substitutionary means 
in your place, you are supposed to die and pay the penalty of sin, which is death. And remember those three deaths, right? The physical death and your spiritual death and eternal death. So even if you became a Christian, uh, our spirit is alive, being born again, the spiritual death is taken care of. Eternal death is when we see Jesus at the judgment seat. But one salvation, incomplete salvation is even every Christian, no matter how devout you are, every single one of us will die physically. Unless the resurrection happens, there will be no salvation of the body. We will be saved from this body and our body will be immortal body. It's a complete salvation. Right? But let's step back, even thinking about atoning death. Substitutionary is in your place. You're supposed to die, but Christ paid the penalty on the cross. Atonement is paying, actual paying for that penalty. Um, for example, you broke a, you know, when you're little, you broke a glass in the store. You obviously don't have the money to pay for that. Your loving parents, a little bit of scolding, but pay <laughs> for that. Right? Jesus paid for that. And he said, it is finished. The work of the payment is finished on the cross. But if he was not raised from the dead, he wasn't what he claimed to be. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the sur suffering servant prophesied in, in Isaiah 53. He wasn't the Christ who was anointed and sent by the God the Father, sovereign God. That's why even our century, and then even if, like a um, Easter greeting, a lot of our generation wants to say it more actively, right? Christ has risen. He rose. He will. He he rises from the dead. Or something like that. But biblically, the expression is always passive. Jesus Christ was raised. Why? By the hand of God. God was backing him up. God is saying, that's my son, and I will raise him. Of course, the mystery of Trinity is there. There, It's not like Christ is helpless and God has to do everything. But in essence, Christ is God. But in the form of God's affirmation, because even the religious leaders adored and worshipped the sovereign God with full fear and reverence. They had just problem with this Christ.
So think about this. If we are still in sin because Christ's death, atoning death is nullified before us, then we are still under the judgment and the wrath of God, and we are heading toward to eternal damnation because of the Holy God. And Apostle Paul is, you need to face this. You cannot turn your face away thinking that somehow everything will come, come back to me. Your faith is futile. Everything becomes big fat zero here if you do not put yourself fully believing and trusting the resurrection of the dead. Number three, if there is no resurrection, we have no hope facing death because the believers who died in Christ are, are lost and perished. And simply, uh, verse 18, he mentions, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The fallen asleep in Christ is a first century Christian expression in light of, I mean, it is just embedded with the resurrection thoughts, isn't it? They're not really dead forever. They're fallen asleep. And then Christ will come, raise them up. That's the idea. In other episodes in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You know, the first 14 is right after Paul's reason for saying that. I do not want you to grieve the, the way that non-Christians, unbelievers grieve without hope for those who passed away. I think about my grandma. I think about my dad. The assuring hope in light of the resurrection of the dead and those who died in Christ uh, are fallen asleep, meaning that someday we will see them face to face. What a comfort that will be. What a challenge and wake-up call that it is for us to, to pray for non-Christian family members unbelieving friends and loved ones. Furthermore, when you think about facing your own death, do you guys know I'm still young, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm young at heart. And I really do think I, you know, when people start calling me some, like, uh, treat me as like old men, I get surprised. I'm still very young at heart. Um, 
but the reality hits in in several directions, especially this year. Some people facing really serious illnesses and problems used to be our father's generation. The people who are really old, parents' generation. When I find out one of my closest friend in Chicago had a colon cancer. For six months, he went through this. And finally, in Facebook, he asked me, how are you doing? Are you healthy? Thank you, I'm healthy. I'm swimming every day for five days. I could lose some weight, but I still love food so much. It's something along the line. And it's a kind of nonchalantly, he mentions, I had colon cancer. I went through chemotherapy. And he's a brother, Christian brother. And, and uh, during my college years, and when I visited him, and we had just a wonderful time because he's my elementary school friend. And we just gelled. Uh, he's a little taller than me. Uh, so he, they would say that he's a big bear and I'm a small bear. You know, I'm actually big this way now. But I hung up the phone, and I, I, I mean, the, uh, got out of the Facebook message, uh, text messages, and then realizes it's happening to my friends around me. So my friends, and my brother is actually going through that. My, so my friends have all these kind of a problems in their back and they have to go to treatment every day. Have you thought about your own death? And the career that you love and your children, your house and affluence of just wonderful Southern California beaches and Orange County suddenly becomes meaningless, isn't it? And there's a genuine fear, obviously. Without the resurrection of the dead, we don't have a hope. Anything different from unbelievers. We cannot face this death without much of a shrinking heart and absurd ideas of meaninglessness of life. If there is resurrection of the dead, and we are to stay here, comparatively speaking, very short period of time. And if this is really true, that I will live with Christ forever and then ever, and there will be no more tears and no more so- sorrows, no more dying. And my body will not have the fleshly, sinful nature no longer. That I will struggle, struggle with the presence of sin anymore. I shall become like Christ. How wonderful it is. But lest we think that like a... People who admired and Plato and, and Platonist 
kind of a thinking that it wasn't it isn't just the idea of our spirit flowing around for eternity. There will be a new heavens and new earth. There will be actually eating and drinking and the the merry supper of the Lamb. We don't know what that exactly looked like. But we know it is the physical body involved which is different from our body. So can't wait until we finally get to the end of the chapter when Paul begins to talk about with just a crescendo of shouting joy. But today, let's go on with one more. If there is no resurrection, Christians of all people are most to be pitied because we suffer loss for nothing. I thought about putting it like uh, Apostle Paul did in, in verse 19. If Christ in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. Most to be pitied. I, I was going to put it just straight like that. I felt guilty. I felt convicted. Because most, most of us um, need to feel the challenge along with me. And this week, as I'm preparing for this message, I dealt with some minor problems. I, you know, like a waiting in Costco more than one and a half hours because <laughs> of my car is not fixed on time, and, and then my initial estimate of the bumper went up and up. And then all these things that just bothered me, and I got so impatient, and, and I lost some, like a, I couldn't sleep that night before because I, I just couldn't concentrate, pumping out this Exodus study. All this thing happening, right? When you think about suffer. For loss. What do you think about? Apostle Paul in Romans 8.18 puts it this way, another angle. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then as soon as we ask this, to finish reading this verse, question will should pop up. Is that mean all the sufferings that I'm going through because of my life stage? Yes. The imperfection of my family, the dysfunctionalism, brokenness and heartache and all these worries and anxieties and my own sins, brokenness? Yes. For many of those Non-Christians are going through that. What Paul went through is a voluntary suffering for the sake of Christ. There are several passages, but it's not just a physical thing. I want you to catch the nuances and it's the internal and external voluntary suffering for Christ. In Second uh, Corinthians 11, verse 23, towards the end, uh, all the way to 27, he kind of shares a little bit of his loss and suffering. 
I am often near death, he says, and five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes at less one, because they were not allowed to do 40, 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drifted at sea on frequent journeys in danger of rivers, danger of robbers, danger from my own people because they didn't like Apostle Paul sharing the gospel of says a new sect, the way. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a, a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety, anxiety, for all the churches. Does that mean that we need to go look for painful experience and sufferings? No. Christians are not sadists or masochists who loves the pain. Some kind of get pleasure out of pain. No, not at all. So I think about what C.S. Lewis said about children playing with the mud. Like I would even imagine that in the street with the muddy thing, having never experienced the glimpses of beautiful South Pacific Ocean, like Bahamas or whatever you, you could picture it, as if that is all. I believe in your heart and in my heart, although we may not live like that, there is a genuine dream in our heart that my life could mean more, more than this. I'm not talking about, you know, I could accomplish my dream. You know, I could, I could be all I can be and even, even going through these physical uh, things like an Iron Man or something like that. I'm talking about, as a Christian, my life should be more than just tending for my own pleasure and happiness and protective of my little family. I want to live for Christ. I want to live in loving for others for Christ. And I think that is the work of the Holy Spirit. When Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He points us to pleasures and and desires of God. Brothers and sisters, I am the first one who will be admitting the, the lures of this culture in which we live, especially Orange County culture. The two words summarizes that. Affluence and comfort. How can I buy a house that is safe, not only for myself, but my children, good, good school district, and buy big entertaining center that I could watch and hear with surrounding system 
sound system that I could access, you know, very frequently anything that would, wouldn't it be great that if I have a winery in the backyard or a separate room, underground or whatever, wine cellar I meant, not winery. <laughs> wouldn't it be great that I could have free tickets every month that I could go anywhere? And Hawaiian vacation is not once every three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. <laughs> but whenever you feel like it. I'm telling you, you could live like that. But how miserable, empty the life would be, especially facing death. And your loved ones, too. I get a wake up call about my lifestyle and my Christian faith whenever I visit my brother with speech impediment and he's still limping. What is the really true reality? And without guilt, unnecessary guilt, I want to gently, affirmingly encourage you and challenge you to look beyond your own little world and know that those desires and dreams come from God. Even if it starts with very small things like praying for a brother or sister who's going through a tough time. Even if you sacrifice a little bit of finance and contribute to the missions fund or sponsor orphan or visit East Asia and Boy and Cindy and Wade and Helen or even Southeast Asia and Bob and Grace and participate in gospel work. In some sense, what Paul is saying and conversely saying, pity not those who live out this life of difficulty for the sake of Christ because in the heaven, the whole thing, reality will come in. Then who will be regretting? Not these people who are living out fully, reckless abandon their lives for God's glory. I think the evil one is very smart in a way that because of unnecessary fear, we retract. And we don't even want to think about it. So this coming week, you don't have to do anything. Isn't that safe? But would you dream? Christ died for me, and he loved me. He called me to follow him. What pleases him? How can I please you, Lord? How can I go beyond my little pleasures and little world? How can I live my life for the rest of my life? Would you dream? Would you dream with me? Would you dream with Crossway family? In spite of our smallness, our, our life stage, and even in the worldly standards, what difference can we make in this city? But can we dream? that we will be bold 
like Apostle Paul and many first century early Christians. At least conceptually, I'm convinced. I want to challenge you. In your presence, there's a fullness of joy. In other words, if we drift away from God and seeking our pleasure, that is the little muddy puddle. Of course, you'll be safe with your house and your all you know, things that you want to protect. But the sovereign God who created your heavens and earth, who loved you so much and called you to partner with him. Yes, we're not young and we're not naive. We're not just an idealist anymore. But what is a tangible way of selfless giving for the sake of Christ? Oh, I long for that. I long for our church to not to think about comparing with other Christians, comparing with other churches, but genuinely experiencing deep joy by giving ourselves freely to Christ. As I mentioned, verse 19 is the end of the paragraph. For verse 20 is so powerful. We need to hang on to this. So let me introduce that, verse 20. But in effect, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I will put it this way. The number five point is, but Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits. What's first fruits? And it's, this is a scriptural language. When you say in even Exodus study, you will say, give the first fruits of the harvest to, the, to God. First fruit means there are many other coming. First fruit is, a, you, you take this apple. This is the first fruit. You give it to the Lord, but many others are coming. That's the idea. First fruits. Christ is the first of many who will be raised from the dead. That's the idea Paul is getting at. Verse 51 and 52, I couldn't resist. And pulling up, this will be a probably next, a second or third message. But Paul writes this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not asleep, all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead would be, will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. After the first fruit, the first resurrection of Christ. When you hear this, I think we should really think about, as we close, um, very simple things. Instead of conceptual things about going through that, you know, yeah, I believe in Christ and I believe in the resurrection. That's it. I, I, I 
that might have application. The application should be more of what should be changed in my heart to live this out. I mean, this past week, as I'm meditating on this powerful message, I was so impatient and disturbed by the little minor details that are are not going well with me. And I believe, brothers and sisters, it begins with our attentiveness to the risen Savior, which means the the resurrection has to be the center of our Christian walk daily. Not just the first century Christians, but even for us. And as we do that, we will be challenged. Wow, this is so radical. Do I really believe that? If I die, even tonight, I will be raised. Even if I have all these problems, that when, we, when I see the trumpet sound that I will be raised, then there will be no regret whatsoever. Conversely, if I live in the limbo, there will be regret. I should have lived, lived differently. Here's a Christ called gently. Like the, one of his disciples who are reluctant to really believe. Thomas, touch my hand pierced hand and my side and believe do not be afraid come to me who could ask that to Christ Lord I, you know how fearful I am No, you know how worried I am for my kids all these things I'm holding on to I'm, I'm a little afraid And the Christ is coming to you and said, you believe that I died for you because I loved you. You know I love you. I didn't die for the heroism's sake. It's for Because I love you more than words can describe. And I will never mislead you. I will never forsake you. And this is the message that we need to live with. And all of a sudden, the things that we're facing, even the difficult ones, even the cancer in your loved ones, even the financial disaster in your life, you could handle it. It will be still difficult. I'm not saying it will go away. But I'm saying... Actually, you will have the strength of, of Christ, reason Christ. And the, the type of peace that you cannot muster on your own, you will have. And I close with this thought. The many of those 500 witnesses, or the early Christians, when they die, 
out of persecution. They're eaten by lions or set on fire. The traditions always tells us that there's, there's a story. The Christians sang <coughs> joyful, quiet hymns as they died. And that was the powerful message the Romans saw in Colossium. And they're just like us. Let's live with that kind of confidence. That with the risen Christ within us, that we could face tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible and profound good news. In our culture, this is just too radical and too abnormal to believe. And we pray that you will keep our heart childlike. Help us not to rationalize and avoid this issue. We pray that you will move our hearts in such a way that that you would increase our faith in our everyday life. And more than anything, the biggest lie that in this culture we have is that we are to pay attention more than anything for our affluence and comfort for our family's sake. Jesus, we, we turn to you and say, you are our Lord and our Savior who is raised by, by the Father, the Sovereign God. We will follow you. Use us and use this church in our own brokenness and for your glory, and that in that glory may we be may we be filled with the exceeding joy, the joy this world does not know. We thank you. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.